Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we are diving once again into the civil war in Ethiopia, which has taken another dramatic turn as Tigrayan forces have made significant military advances that have led Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to declare a state of emergency. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Christopher Clapham to help us take a step back and make sense of this moment in Ethiopia's history and what the future could bring. Dr. Clapham has been closely following and writing on Ethiopia for many decades. He's based at the Center for African Studies at Cambridge University. And I'll note that with all we had to cover in this episode, we've let it run a bit longer than usual. Thanks for listening. Dr. Clapham, welcome to The Horn. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, my first question, we've watched for the past few years as Ethiopia has taken several stunning turns. Uh, The whiplash is severe and quite astounding to watch. I'm just wondering, as someone who's followed Ethiopia, written on Ethiopia for so long, what have been your thoughts, your reactions, as you've watched these most recent events unfold? Well, at the moment, I have to say that I'm getting seriously worried, in particular by the level of ethnic, or as they'd say in Ethiopia, national division, We've never had anything like the kind of ethnic cleansing that appears to be taking place in especially Addis Ababa at the moment. And incidents of this kind do create a massive sense of hostility, which mean that putting everything back together again, even if there is some stable political solution to be discovered and implemented, is going to be a long, tough job. So we're going, of course, to get back to current events in a second. Um, but, but one of the reasons we brought you on was to help us, I think, put these current events in a very broad and very deep historical context. So I'm going to take you back into Ethiopia's history a bit. Ethiopia is exceptional among African states, I think famously so, for successfully resisting European colonization. I'm just wondering, why is that relevant today as we're trying to understand what's going on right now? First of all, of course, it's a source of enormous national pride. Ethiopians are often accused of having superiority complexes, and it is a country with a very long history. It's been independent for well over 2,000 years. It has an astonishing culture, an archaeology, if you like, very ancient connections with many of the world's great religions. But on the other hand, in some ways, being the only indigenous African state to survive through the colonial era without being colonized, also has its downside. It was created by a process of internal colonization, if you like, rather than one by people from a distant continent. And whereas the colonialists could get in their planes and fly away, in Ethiopia, the sources of that division from when the state was founded still remain very, very much with us. When I first went to Ethiopia a long time ago, in the days of the Emperor Haile Selassie, as a very green English research student, I was astonished that many of my Ethiopian contemporaries openly regretted that Ethiopia had not been colonised. Countries such as Kenya next door was much more developed, had much better infrastructure, had a much more viable economy, and had in the early days after independence, a democratic political system, but equally 
What that overlooked was the enormous advantages that Ethiopia also got from not being colonised, that they are very much their own people, that they don't have many of the hang-ups, if you want to call them that, that have tended to come with colonisation. And so after, of course, Emperor uh, Haile Selassie came the Derg regime, I'm just wondering, you know, as we go through Ethiopian history up to the modern day, what, what's important to know about the Derg? Why, why are they important to where Ethiopia is at now? The Derg was a classic revolutionary regime, and this was a real revolution, comparable, as it were, to the revolutions that took place in France or in Russia or in China, that involved a total overturning of the existing political structure, an enormous amount of brutality, mass murder, if you want to put it that way, civil war, but which did sweep away a lot of the accumulated detritus, if you like, of a very ancient state, its privileges, its inequalities, and tried to build a modern socialist democratic state on the ruins. All of my students, when I used to teach in Addis Ababa University in the 1960s, were ardent revolutionaries. Almost all of them were Marxists in terms of political ideology, and they longed for the day that would sweep away this corrupt feudal empire, as they regarded it, and enable them to build a modern, developed democratic state in its place. As invariably happens with revolutions likewise, those aspirations were bitterly disappointed. A lot of my revolutionary students from the 1960s ended up fragmented on one side or another of the vicious conflicts that accompanied the revolution. Many of them were murdered, as crudely as that. And in particular, the attempt by the revolutionary regime known as the Derg, who were military Marxists with a strong alliance with the then-Soviet Union, to build a modern, very centralised, very authoritarian state, itself collapsed. It aroused a level of opposition, especially in the countryside, that allowed other movements, again heavily Marxist in much of their, of their ideological orientation, to build up something much more like a Chinese peasant revolution, which eventually overthrew the Derg in 1991. And so, having tried to start again when the revolution broke out in 1974, Ethiopia found itself having to rebuild once more after 1991, when the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, or the EPRDF as it was called, came to power under its leader, Melis Zanawi. Now that brings us up pretty well near to the present day. Um, before we before we go to the EPRDF and Meles's time, w- would you say it was the Derg who transitioned Ethiopia from its empire state to a modern nation state? Well, it certainly got rid of the ancient empire. What it did not succeed in doing was creating the modern nation state in its place. And what happens when you destroy a very ancient structure such as the Ethiopian one was, was that you get a series of vicious internal conflicts breaking out over what the new Ethiopia, in this case, just as you did with the new France or the new Russia, is going to be that replaces the old 
feudal imperial order. And that aroused some very difficult questions which remain unresolved. Ethiopia has historically been dominated by the peoples from the northern highland regions, what are now called Amhara and Tigray, who were Orthodox Christian, and many of the rest of the population of the country, especially in the lowland areas, were Muslim. What passed for Ethiopian nationalism was, to a very large extent, the nationalism of the ancient Christian Highland core, which from the viewpoint of many people, Muslims especially, and lowlanders rather than highlanders, looked like an oppressive state and an even more oppressive state under the military revolutionary regime than it had been under the old imperial regime, which was nothing like as ruthless or as well organised as the revolutionary regime was. These are very familiar problems in revolutions the world over, but they certainly hit Ethiopia in a very big way. So what exactly was the political settlement under the EPRDF, under the rule of Mele Sanawi, starting in 1991? And I'm just wondering, you know, why did it fail? Right. Mele Sanawi was a man of extraordinary intelligence and also charm, and a man who tried his very best to think through what the problems of the historic Ethiopian state had been and how to resolve them. And he saw, since the attempt to impose a highly centralised Marxist revolutionary regime had been an obvious and catastrophic disaster, that the solution lay in a federal system which would devolve political authority as much as possible. The big problem was that, following, amazing as that it may seem, in the footsteps of Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union, he thought that the federal system needed to be based on ethnicity or nationality, as it's always called both in Russia and in Ethiopia, and so that you needed the separate units of the federal state to be derived from the ethnic groups, especially based on the language that people spoke, and that each linguistic group would then have its own government with its own capacity to make decisions locally. At the other hand, Mellis also shared a very common communist or Marxist belief in a highly centralised state controlling the commanding heights of the economy. And so within the regime that he set up, the EPRDF, there was this inherent contradiction between the idea of federal devolution down to the local level and at the same time the need for a powerful state-directed economic development process. And very much again in tune with Marxist ideology, Meles always assumed that the economics would determine the politics and that if you could get the economy right, everything else would follow after it. And he simply failed to take sufficient account of the way in which a federal system based on ethnicity would have the impact, as indeed it did in Russia, of entrenching more and more deeply the divisions between the often very different social groups of which Ethiopia was composed. So I'm wondering 
what it is you think exactly that Meles got wrong in this ethnic federalism component, you know, as a formal foundation for the state? Was it that there was too much decentralization, as some of its critics allege, or not enough, as others claim? Or was it this inherent contradiction that you're pointing to that ultimately proved the downfall? Well, there are two very different, in fact, directly opposing critiques of the federal system that Mellis established. On the one hand, there are those who say that Mellis broke up the historic unity of Africa's only non-colonial state with its own deeply entrenched sense of identity and tribalised everything, to put it at its crudest. And for these, the solution was to maintain a strong sense of national identity based on Ethiopia's ancient history, on its culture, on its language, and for some at least on its religion, which was Christianity. On the other hand, side of the fence, you have those who say that Meles was quite right to establish a federal system, that there was no way in which the enormous diversity between Ethiopia's different peoples could be reconciled unless they were given a very significant amount of autonomy of their own. And the criticism that these people bring against Meles was that, essentially, the whole federal system was a sham, that while promising regional self-government to each of its numerous peoples, it actually remained the same centralised Marxist-Leninist state that the Derek had been and that Meles himself also believed in. And these two diametrically opposed positions then mark the key line of conflict, if you like, over the future of Ethiopia that has taken place ever since and which is, I think, ultimately at the root of the appalling war that we're seeing at the moment. Now, can you just walk our listeners through the events, as you see them, that led us from Mele Zanawi's death up to the rise of Prime Minister Abiy and that transition that took place. Meles achieved an astonishingly successful level of economic development. Ethiopia was for some years in the 2000s, 2010s, one of the fastest growing countries in the world. He had a very clear idea of the economic program that he wanted to be put in place, resembling very much actually that followed in China where you had a Communist Party in firm political control, but at the same time introduced market forces into the running of the economy. What he failed to manage was the actual distribution of political power, which did remain very centralised and which was very widely seen as strongly favouring his own people, the Tigrayans, over Ethiopians from other groups. And the Tigrayans are really quite a small group. They account for about 6% of Ethiopia's population. Put another way, one Ethiopian out of every 17 is a Tigrayan. And a political base that relied over heavily on Melis's own people was always going to be extremely fragile. After Melis's death in 2012... There was an internal transfer of power to a new prime minister, Halamariam Dessalegne, who was a Walaita from the south-west of Ethiopia, from one of the historically 
much less developed, indeed often exploited peoples, who then inherited the system that Mellis had set up, but in which he could actually do very little, because essentially Tigrayans and those who were integrated into the political parties that were established under the federal system exercised a level of behind-the-scenes influence, not least in the military and the security services, that um, Hadamariam, a thoroughly decent, honest man, I've always found, simply couldn't break through. And essentially what saw the end of the system that Mellis had set up was the breaking out of a whole series of regional opposition movements, of which by far the strongest were those based amongst the Oromo people, who were the largest single group in Ethiopia, with about 34% of its total population, spread through much of southern and western Ethiopia, with students, with urban crowds in different parts of the Oromo region, simply rebelling against the government. And at this point, the leaders of the political parties, and there was a separate political party for each ethnic group, found that in order to retain any credibility with their own electorate, they had to shift away from the central government view and towards one that much more clearly reflected what were becoming insistent demands from the base. And it was at this point that Halemariam Deseleng, the successor to Mellis as Prime Minister, recognised that he couldn't carry on any longer and then helped to orchestrate an astonishing feat in Ethiopia, a contested but peaceful transfer of power, still nominally within the ruling party, to a new Oromo leader drawn from the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia, who was Abiy Ahmed, the current Prime Minister. That was quite astonishing to observe at the time, which was in 2018. There had never been a peaceful transfer of power within Ethiopia from one group to another group. Such transfers had always been fought out, often viciously, on the battlefield or through the revolution. And for a magical moment, it looked as though Abi would be taking over the government of Ethiopia with a very wide range of support from across the country. But what has been deeply depressing about the fate of Ethiopia over the last few years has been the speed and completeness with which the apparent miracle of the transfer of power in 2018 has now broken down. We will be back in a moment, but first a message from our friends at Foreign Policy. The Paris Climate Agreement, the Iran nuclear deal, the Bring Back Our Girls campaign. You rarely hear what happens behind the closed doors of the world's biggest agreements, until now. On the new podcast, The Negotiators, Foreign Policy is teaming up with Doha Debates to put listeners in the room. On each episode, you'll hear the story of one mediator, diplomat, or troubleshooter telling the story of one dramatic negotiation. Foreign Policy Deputy Editor Jen Williams hosts The Negotiators. Listen to new episodes every week on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the episode. 
Before we go on to what's happened during the the rule of Prime Minister Abiy, first of all, as you mentioned, the Oromo are the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia. I'm just wondering why it is you think that it took so long for them to really play such a defining role in the course of the country's politics. Firstly, although the Oromo were the largest group with their 34%, the only other very big group are the Amhara, with about 27%. These are going on the figures from the last census in, if I remember right, 2007. But political power, including much of the state bureaucracy, had remained with the Amhara. And so the Oromo had to break into that, even though a lot of Oromo had been involved in senior positions in the Ethiopian government, going way back as far as the 17th century, actually. The idea of a government that identified itself as being Oromo was a very new one indeed. But the real problem with the Oromo is that they themselves are a very diverse people or group of peoples. Many Oromo are Muslim, especially in southern and eastern Ethiopia, down towards the Somali region. But a lot of Oromo are Christian, and equally two different groups amongst the Oromo had had very different histories. And so different Oromo tend to look at the Ethiopian state in a different way from one another, and creating a united Oromo nationalist movement capable of managing the whole Ethiopian state has been a very difficult task indeed, and one that has not yet been achieved. Um, Prime Minister Abiy, you know, took power partly on the, well, very much in the aftermath and during these uh, very large-scale Romo protests, as you say, and sort of the unraveling of the um, EPRDF uh, regime. What do you think proved his downfall should he should he lose this war? And of course, it's too early to say that. But what do you think he got wrong, at, given the scale of sort of deterioration that we've seen under his premiership so far? No, what he got wrong points it very directly to the individual Abiy himself. And there is much, of course, that is structural. It's just the way Ethiopia is created. Anyone coming into the position that he came into was facing very difficult problems. One of his problems, for example, was that although his father was an Oromo, nonetheless his own rise to political prominence had been through the political party called the Oromo People's Democratic Organization that formed part of the state established by Meles Zenawi and whose claim to represent the Oromo people was bitterly contested by many other Oromos. So he was always under the threat of being seen as a an Oromo collaborator, if you like, with a Tigrayan-dominated regime. So Abiy was always facing big problems in creating a political movement amongst his own people, um, let alone for Ethiopia as a whole. Equally, he appeared when he came in to be the answer to everybody's prayers. His father was a Muslim Oromo, his mother was a Christian Amhara, an Orthodox Christian Amhara, his own religion was Pentecostalist Protestant Christianity, as well as being fluent in the languages of the Oromo and the Amhara. He was also fluent in the Tigrayan language, and he looked like the perfect combination that you needed. But 
At this point, certainly, I think you can point now to problems of straightforward political skills. It was always going to be a very difficult balancing act for Abbey to follow, and one that I would have to say, I'm afraid, he has simply not managed at all well. And I can't claim any personal acquaintance with um, Abbey, whom I've met, but whom I've never had the opportunity to speak to at length. But speaking to many, many friends of mine who have, he's very a very isolated man, a man with a deep religious commitment, with a very strong sense of his moral right to be ruler of Ethiopia. He certainly doesn't consult much. And for a country as diverse and as difficult to manage as Ethiopia is, that is a very considerable disadvantage. And the story I've heard from many people, both Ethiopians, distinguished Africans who've attempted to mediate in the situation in Ethiopia, and indeed outsiders, is that he's a man very difficult to get through to. You can speak to him, but you don't really get the sense that he's taking in what you're trying to tell him. And that has become increasingly evident as things have gone very badly for the federal government in the current conflict. And where Abiy goes to from there is now, I think, extremely uncertain. We've talked a bit about a sort of pendulum swing that we've seen in Ethiopia, you know, from the hyper-centralization to then the ethnic federalism under Meles, and then Abi trying to sort of re-centralize things and really stress Ethiopian nationalism again. Do you, was there a miscalculation about how, you know, that genie can be put back in the bottle again once they once there is this ethnic devolution? I'm just wondering if maybe this transition was just more difficult than what uh, many who, who wanted to see it happen maybe uh, thought would be the case. First of all, this is a genie that has been into and out of its bottle any time these last 2,000 years. And we have a very great deal of Ethiopian history, which has oscillated back and forth between relatively strong centralized leaders and a system so decentralized that Ethiopia could scarcely be said to exist at all. One of the miracles of Ethiopia was that Prior to the mid-19th century, a period known as the era of the princes, or what we might now call an era of the warlords, Ethiopia split apart totally, and the rulers of the different major provinces were essentially independent potentates. And the miracle was that Ethiopia put itself together under a succession of outstanding modernising emperors, just in time to beat off the European colonialists. And that process of centralization then carried through under Emperor Haile Selassie, who was himself a strong centralizer, and even more so under the Derg, the revolutionary regime from 1974 to 1991. The Derg pushed this process not simply as far as it could go, but much further than it could go, and so attracted a regionalist reaction. So... When Abiy came to power, he came to power with support from regional parties and groupings in Ethiopia, but at the same time, 
Very understandably, having himself taken over the leadership of the Ethiopian state, started to see things in the way that national leaders tend to do from a central perspective and sought to reintegrate those elements in Ethiopia that had been pushing for a much more devolved and federalist system, not least, of course, amongst the people, the Oromo, from whom he came himself. So this was always going to be a very tricky one to manage. You do have to recognise that there's no guarantee that anyone could have. But this is the point at which it would have been enormously helpful to have someone who was much more open than Abi, who was capable of talking to different kinds of people, picking up different viewpoints, trying to balance his appointments and trying to ensure at the same time that people from different areas of Ethiopia and with different views on Ethiopia's future could nonetheless work peacefully together. Now, one problem certainly was with the Tigray region, which was the region that had seen itself and been seen by others as dominating Ethiopian politics to an extraordinary extent for this mere 6% of the population over a period by 2018 when Abiy came to power of over a quarter of a century. And certainly some of the blame, some would say much of the blame for the current breakdown does rest with the way in which the Tigrayan party the Tigray People's Liberation Front, refused to accept the new political dispensation that Abiy was trying to create. At the same time, the Tigrayans are now themselves very much aware that there is no possibility at all of them dominating the government of the whole of Ethiopia to the extent that they did. And so he, the new leadership in Tigray has been looking especially to Oromo parties, and amongst them especially to the Oromo Liberation Front, to provide a nationwide balancing act of different groups, which, if things were to go well from their point of view, might then be able to establish a new government of Ethiopia to displace that of Prime Minister Abiy. You know, I think a lot of the outside actors and diplomats who've been trying to get the parties to go to peace talks and to find a peaceful resolution to this war have been struck by just how resistant the uh, parties have been to compromise, to talks. And I think I think your your own uh, walk through Ethiopian history sort of shows the, the deep history of coercive politics um, in Ethiopia. And, and this is striking, I think, to, to many diplomats in some ways because it runs so counter to the norms, you know, even in many of Ethiopia's neighbors. So I'm just wondering how you explain this part of Ethiopia's political culture. I've often been asked to help brief diplomats going out for postings in Ethiopia as ambassadors or whatever it might be. And the one thing I always tell them is never, ever, ever tell Ethiopians what to do. <laughs> Ethiopians have an intense sense of their own history, of their own identity, of their own right to govern their own futures. And for foreigners 
no matter how well-meaning and almost invariably they're very well-meaning indeed, to come in and say, look, you ought to be doing this, you ought to be doing that, you instantly provoke what is a classic Ethiopian reaction, regardless of which particular group of Ethiopians you're talking to. So this is not a country, and it is very much part of its non-colonial legacy, that is open to persuasion much. It's a deeply suspicious political culture. It is one with a strong sense, no matter how fractionalised it might be, of its own distinctiveness. And so, essentially, the leadership in any kind of attempt to reconstruct a political settlement for Ethiopia has to lie with Ethiopians and foreigners need to take as backward a seat as possible. And even among foreigners, my preference would always be to look to other Africans to take the leading role, um, and especially not to countries such as the United States or the United Kingdom, or indeed Russia or China, which have long imperial histories of their own. Now, Ethiopians certainly, despite their level of antagonism, are capable of discussion, of compromise. One of the fascinating things during the transition from the Halamariam Desilene Prime Ministership to the Abi Prime Ministership in the first half of 2018 was the level of discussion that was taking place between different groups within Ethiopia who often hadn't been speaking to one another for years. And behind the arrival of Abi in power was a good deal of behind-the-scenes talking, a recognition that the Oromo had been excluded from the centre of Ethiopian politics much too much and for far too long, a feeling that a new, more consensual system was needed, that the Tigrayans would have to take a back seat, and that resulted in the accession of Prime Minister Abi. Now, of course, it's all to be done again, under circumstances that look much more difficult than they did even just three years, three or four years ago. Okay. Do, do you think it's possible to thread this needle? You talk about, you know, groups wanting to return to perhaps the promises of the of the 2018 transition. Is it possible to thread this needle between this desire to hold the country together centrally with an Ethiopian nationalism and, you know, the 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 desire of, of some of the ethnic slash national groups who, you know, who very much want to see more power devolved. How would you sort of frame that dilemma that Ethiopia faces? You're absolutely right. It is a very deep dilemma. And threading that needle is something that would take enormous political skills and sensitivity. And not only a single leader, but a group of people who, on the one hand, retain credibility amongst their own domestic constituencies in different parts of Ethiopia, but at the same time who recognise the need for some common framework to hold the country together. In the short term, I would have thought it almost inevitable that the forces of diversity would have the upper hand because amongst those who are desperately looking for solutions are many who see their own essential futures 
and indeed their pasts, as deriving from their own local peoples. But equally, Ethiopia, and in this respect it's like many, many other African states, is a very diverse country, but at the same time one that over the years has developed a kind of identity of its own. One issue that would come up in trying to reshape an Ethiopia, a new Ethiopia, is where the boundary lines would go between different groups. And some groups, and the Tigrayans are among them, are fairly solidly, solidly based in a particular area of territory that they can legitimately call Tigray. But if you look at a map of the Oromia region, where the Oromos live, in the current federal dispensation of Ethiopia, it's a total crazy paving. There are different groups of Oromo in the southwest, in the southeast, going somewhere up into the north. Most of central Ethiopia is Oromo, but these people are at the same time intermingled with others, be they Somalis, or Walaitas, or Goragis, or indeed Amharas, or Kulo Kontas, or whoever they might be, whose territories are a complete jigsaw puzzle. If you were to imagine Oromia as an independent state, as some Oromo nationalists are talking about it, just drawing up its boundaries would be crazy. You could never do it. And there are, at the same time, many things that hold Ethiopia together, including its communications network, its transport systems, its economy, a great deal of shared history too, and a great deal even of shared culture. The Amharic language in Ethiopia, for instance, was originally a language of conquest, much in the same way that English or French became languages of conquest, or Portuguese indeed, in different parts of colonial Africa. But these days, Amharic is a lingua franca that people speak throughout Ethiopia. If you don't know the local language, you just speak to one another in Amharic. And that is a process that's already gone a very long way and that is going to be very difficult to reverse. So as someone with a long-term view of Ethiopia, I find it very difficult to imagine Ethiopia actually breaking apart into totally different bits. I think the pressures for people to talk to one another, to do things in common, are always going to be there. And what needs to be worked out is the specific modalities through which what will inevitably be a bargaining, compromising form of politics of a kind that Ethiopia has not historically been used to can actually be made to work. I'm just wondering, you know, if it looks like as it as it is looking like the TPLF or the you know TDF the Tigrayans if if they play a very leading role in in getting to shape this new political order do you think it's plausible that we would see something that would would lead to sort of this consensual national process to to sort of resolve these um, because a lot of what seems to be coming out now is is a sort of sense of even further decentralization than what was there under ethnic federalism. Now, the Tigrayans have certainly um, achieved, at the moment at any rate, a quite extraordinary level of success in the war against the federal government. And it is extraordinary because, as I mentioned, Tigrayans are only one in 17 of the population of Ethiopia. And so the level of success that they've achieved, no matter how 
disciplined and organised and skilfully managed they may be, has to owe an enormous amount, not to their strength, but to the weakness of the federal government. If that government falls, and it's getting increasingly difficult to see how it's going to survive, then whatever follows is going to have to involve significant negotiations between the major groups that will constitute the new basis of power in Ethiopia. I think it's widely accepted that Oromos have to be at the front of that, that the new leader of Ethiopia, whoever it may be, would have to be someone with a very substantial backing in a specifically ethnic Oromo constituency. The next big, big question is finding an appropriate role for the Amhara, with their, what is it, 26% or so of the population, who are, again, 27, I think, precisely, the other really big group, and one that has historically been associated with Ethiopian nationalism. Much of the present war is actually a war between Amharas and Tigrayans, between the two groups with the deepest links to historic Ethiopia, the two historically orthodox Christian peoples of Ethiopia. And it is paradoxical, in a way, that those should be the ones most bitterly fighting against one another. But just as you can't govern Ethiopia without the Oromo, nor can you govern it without the Amhara, who account for an absolute majority of the population of Addis Ababa and have a very entrenched role in the national government and the bureaucracy and so forth. So some deal there is going to be needed. There is, I think, a widespread recognition now that Tigray cannot dominate a new Ethiopian government politically in a way that it did after 1991 and in the way that it now appears to be doing militarily. That what Tigrayans really are plausibly looking for is a very significant level of autonomy within their own province and there will be difficult issues there, especially over their borders with the Amhara region, and that given that, and given some role at any rate in central government, my impression is that they would be prepared to retreat. Tigrayans have been bitterly affected by the vicious occupation of Tigray, not simply by the Ethiopian federal government, but by the Eritreans, whom we haven't mentioned so far, to the north, who have joined enthusiastically with the Abiy government, essentially in order to get their re revenge on the Tigrayans, who are from exactly the same group as the Highland Eritreans themselves. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great segue to what was my, my next question. What does an unstable Ethiopia mean for the, not just the Horn of Africa, the smaller horn as it's known, but for the greater Horn of Africa, the, the bigger Eastern Africa region? First of all, Ethiopia is easily the largest country in this region of Africa. Only Nigeria is larger in Africa as a whole. There is not another country in the region which has anything remotely approaching Ethiopia's importance. And put bluntly, that means an unstable Ethiopia means a, an unstable Horn of Africa. A stable Ethiopia is the essential precondition for trying to create regional stability in which in what has been historically a very fragmented and often violent region. 
Eritrea is the state most immediately involved because it has the closest links with Ethiopia, of which it was historically part until the Italian colony was formed in 1890, whose people speak the same language as the Tigrayans, and because under President Isaiah Sefawerki, it has chosen to become much more deeply engaged in the current conflict in Ethiopia, in which report has it at any rate that the Eritrean army is fighting with what remains of the Ethiopian National Army, Ethiopian National Defence Forces, and if that army is defeated, the Eritreans will be in a tricky position with it. The paradox of the alliance between Eritrea and Abi is that Abi is fighting on an Ethiopian nationalist agenda to keep Ethiopia together. Asar Sefawelki and the Eritreans are fighting to split Ethiopia apart. They are acutely aware that they are a tiny country of maybe four or five million people sitting next door to a country of 110 million people. And the Eritrean answer to that one has consistently been to foment divisions within Ethiopia itself as the essential backstop for the protection of Eritrea. On the other hand, a stable Ethiopia is one that has an enormous amount to offer to the rest of the region. This was the dream of Melasanawi, that by achieving successful economic development in Ethiopia, you would be able to spread that development through the linkages to the sea, through connections with neighbouring states, notably Kenya and Sudan, that had often been at odds with one another, but which could be made partners in a common developmental project. So all the way round Ethiopia are a group of states that are deeply dependent on Ethiopia for their own stability, which explains, of course, why the African Union has put together a very high-level mission in the attempt to forge some kind of consensus to developments inside Ethiopia itself. We're basically out of time, and you've been very generous with both your time and your insights. Following up on your final point there regarding the AU envoy, uh, Obasanjo, we've talked a bit about the resistance, um, understandable resistance Ethiopians have to foreigners you know, telling them what to do. Uh, but, but for concerned outsiders, foreigners... Africans or others, uh, do you think there is anything they can do to help Ethiopians at this time? Well, they may be able to, insofar as the Ethiopians are willing for them to do so. And I'm glad that um, Obasanjo has been put at the head of the AU mission, because he is a man of vast experience. He's the elder amongst elders on the African diplomatic scene, it's easy to forget that Obasanjo was the man who, as a major general in the Nigerian army, received the surrender of the Biafran armed forces at the end of the Nigerian civil war in 1970, more than half a century ago. And Africa retains much of its respect for age, something that I've appreciated as I've become older myself, but... Um, Obasanjo also has an enormous amount of experience in dealing with other very tricky issues, and he is certainly someone who will be deeply aware of the problems as well as the possibilities of mediation 
in Africa, so I can only say more power to his elbow. You could never rely on anything in Ethiopia. But um, nonetheless, I would certainly put much more hope behind an African Union mission, taking account, of course, of the fact that the African Union itself is headquartered in Addis Ababa, than well-meaning efforts from outside Americans, Europeans, even Chinese, you mention it. Well, thank you, Dr. Clapham. We've really appreciated this conversation on our end. Well, I hope it will be useful for those who listen to it, too. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. This episode was produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 